evil and suffering and injustice that they see in this world. So I eventually decided I need to, and a lot of them were saying this was coming from philosophy, so I ended up doing that MA in philosophy that uh, Brian mentioned, and it was specifically in the problem of suffering and evil and the existence of God. More specifically than that, it had to do with why we have the foggiest idea what God should and should not allow, so all the arguments against God actually collapse. And we're going to look at that in the second point here. Just a couple of things to say here. You don't necessarily have to jot down anything that you're going to see here because as you can see on the screen, right there, there's the notes. You're going to see the exact same things pretty much. I may have tweaked a bit here and there, but you're going to see pretty much there. You can download all those slides uh, as in the form of a PDF document. And uh, I have published some papers in secular philosophy journals on, on the why we have no clue. And that's my website, kirkdurston.com, and all my papers are available there just free for the downloading. Uh, and if I forget, I did present at a conference in, in the UK um, a paper showing why God must terminate civilization, so why a perfectly good God must end civilizations if they become a gratuitous evil. And um, I specifically use Canaan, the conquest of Canaan, as my example, and when I finished... We had 15 minutes to present, and then it was Q&A, and this was a PhD graduate student conference. You could tell that there were a lot of people in the room didn't like didn't like that paper at all. But I had an I, I had a syllogism. It was all argument. They're like clear premise A, premise B, therefore conclusion, and uh, they couldn't find a, really a good loophole in the argument. But you could tell they sure didn't like it. Anyways, a couple of months later, an editor for um, Cambridge University's Journal for the Philosophy of Religion emailed me and asked if I would mind, uh, you know, revising that paper to be in a journal form and submitting it. That was shocking. I never get that. It's always usually, you know, we don't like this and here's about five things you need to change and all this kind of stuff. So that paper is available here. It was published and that's at kirkderson.com and that's about all I'm going to deal with in the formal part. I'm not going to actually deal with what about the things in the Old Testament in the formal part, though you can certainly ask about those in the Q&A. But the conquest of Canaan is the only one that I've tackled professionally and, and had it published. But you can read that paper there if you want a technical thing. So let's uh, get started here. Just by way of preview, I want to divide this into three sections. In the first section, uh, the main idea there I want to argue for is that just as it makes no sense to complain about a high crime rate if in fact there's no laws in existence to break, in the same way, it makes no sense to talk about evil and injustices in, in this world as if they actually occurred, if in fact there's no standard of perfection and beauty to be violated. In order to talk meaningfully about a high crime rate, there has to be laws to be broken. In order to meaningfully complain about injustice and suffering and evil in this world, there has to be somewhere out there an ultimate standard of moral perfection that's being violated. So that's my first section I want to look at. We'll look at that in detail. And the second thing I want to argue for in my, my time here this morning is that because every event in this world, no matter how small, leads to an increasing number of consequences spreading into the future, we haven't the foggiest idea of what God should or should not allow, despite what we assume. So I have a, a consistently observed many, many people look at some event, 
say, where is a good God? How could a good God allow that particular thing? But I want to show that actually we're in no position whatsoever to know what God should and should not permit. And that's really where the area of my master's focused on and where most of my papers focus on, defending that in the philosophical literature. Finally, I want to close with, well, we actually have some insights from the Bible as to why God does sometimes permit this or that. So we do have some insights. I want to close by looking at some of those. So let's begin with my first main section, the first main idea here, and that is it makes no sense to talk about evil and injustice in this world unless there is a standard of perfection and beauty that is being violated, and only God can actually satisfy the requirements for that standard. So that's the main idea I want to go with here. Okay, I was a kid once, and I would suspect that some of you were kids once yourself. And you may remember, I remember a lot about being a kid, playing a game, and then all of a sudden, that's not fair, you're cheating. And uh, it soon became, uh, they would complain about some, you're not allowed to do this. Well, who made up that rule? We, we hadn't made up the rules ahead of time. We just assumed everybody knew what the rules were, but they were, we hadn't really agreed on anything. And so there would be a discussion, and we would say, okay, we'll make up this rule, and halfway through the game, this rule, and nobody, you know, ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. And uh, so the point, the takeaway from that is this, is that we cannot complain about somebody cheating in a game unless there's some existing rules to be broken. That's fairly straightforward. Cannot complain. If, you're gonna, if your complaints about cheating in some game that you play, even as an adult, and I know that even as an adult sometimes, I've encountered situations, ah, oh, we forgot to decide what are we going to do about this or that. We make up a rule halfway through the game. So from this point on, we'll play by that rule. But you can't complain meaningfully about cheating happening in a game or somebody being a real cheater if, in fact, there are no rules in existence to be broken. And that has implications. It has implications as to why C.S. Lewis, who at one point in his life, younger life, was an atheist. Uh, he was a professor of literature both at Oxford and at Cambridge during his career, but in the younger part of his life, he was an atheist, and his argument from God was the same thing I've heard countless times from university students, the injustice and evil and suffering in the world, therefore, it can't be a good God. But C.S. Lewis was thinking. He was an amazing thinker. He wrote, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. This is a quote from Mere Christianity, by the way, and at least last night I observed there were several copies for sale on the book table. I would, I would recommend everybody here get themselves a copy and work through that. So I hope they have like a couple hundred copies. Uh, if, they, if they run out, they can always order more. I'm sure they can do that. But I have found that book. 
I have gone through that book several times. I've taught it several, many, quite a few times. I don't know how many times I've even taught through that book. But uh, excellent, excellent. C.S. Lewis had a way of putting things that I just look at myself and I think, why do I even stand up and talk? Because he just has an amazing ability with language. So here's the takeaway. Just as we cannot complain about cheating unless there is some existing rules that are being broken, we cannot meaningfully talk about evil and injustice unless there is a standard of perfection and beauty that is being violated. So you have a choice to make. And C.S. Lewis realized that choice. We all have these intuitions about evil and injustice and justice and rightness. You all have those intuitions. And you have to decide whether this is just your fancies, your just personal preferences. This is something you made up, and therefore you can't meaningfully complain. It's nonsense, actually, to complain about evil and injustice if there's no standard being violated. It makes about as much sense as complaining about how the fairies and leprechauns have been behaving last week out on the back hayfield of our farm. Like it's, it's just nonsense. So if, it's, if you're not willing to say that our concepts of justice and evil and stuff are just some figment of our imagination, if you're not willing to do that, the implication is you have to concede the existence that there is a standard out there. And I want to move now into the question, what is that standard? So the first possibility, and this is the one that our current society is going for, is that could this standard of perfection, could this moral system be personal choice? And there's a big, big emphasis on personal choice now, and what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me, and, and so forth. Well, here's the question. How well does a group game work if each person makes up their own rules? It's just chaos. That is precisely what we're beginning to see in our society. Just chaos, moral chaos. Everybody's making up their own rules. And it should be patently obvious that any game you play where every player makes up their own rules, I'm out of here. I just don't have time for that. I, like, that's not even a game. That's just a, an exercise in futility. Here's the point. We do need a moral law that is higher than individual preference. It's only then that we can legitimately say that some, pers some people behave better than others. So when you see someone committing an injustice or doing something wrong, you cannot appeal to your own fancies. Like, I like chocolate chip cookies. I think those are the best cookies. And somebody might make cookies with coconut in them. And I cannot legitimately complain that that's evil unless there's a higher standard that defines what good cookies are. In this case, there is no higher standard. We can all pretty much agree that it's personal preference. But when it comes to evil and injustice, you cannot complain about one person coming closer or being better than somebody else in this area unless the standard is actually higher than the individual. And I see this right now in our society where everybody wants personal choice as far as what's right and wrong, but yet they're very, very adamant that some people are actually doing something wrong. And the moment they say that, let's say, what if we decide tomorrow that we can have slaves? I don't know who we're going to use for slaves. I'm part Ukrainian, so let's use Ukrainians. So Ukrainians have become slaves. It's fine. And I'll keep in mind, I said, I am part Ukrainian here. I would object. But... Um, I'm sure that our Canadian society would dispute that, even though everybody seems to be wanting to make their own personal standards of right and wrong. And the moment that you have somebody saying, no, this is actually wrong here, 
you're actually appealing to a higher standard. And our society doesn't realize it, but many times they're appealing to a higher standard of some of this of justice and fairness, even though they want to make their own rules. So this, this standard that we're talking about cannot be personal choice. It has to be higher than that. One option I hear a lot on university campuses is that our moral intuitions have just evolved. They're an evolutionary artifact. Well, the first problem, the first problem we run into is soon as, let's say I believed that, and then one morning I woke up and I realized, wait a sec, this is just an evolutionary artifact. I don't actually have to live this way. And when you actually think about it, there's lots of, say, animal instincts we might have, like, um, that guy does something wrong, my animal instinct is to rearrange his teeth, smash his sternum. But wait a sec, that's just natural instinct. I grew up in a school that was very violent, and we just did whatever instinctively came to mind when somebody messed up on the school ground. And, uh, but yet, we all now hopefully agree that that was not right. So the instincts are no excuse for thinking this is the way we ought to live. If we live the way according to our instincts, whoa, like it'd be a pretty bad situation. Here's something else. If our morality is in our genes, we should not have to teach it. And if it's an evolutionary outcome, it has to be inherited somehow biologically. We should not have to inherit it. So I have six kids. I look at my kids and I say, okay, so how do they naturally behave, my six kids? Let's say we don't interfere with how they behave. Well, we observed for our six kids, we did not have to teach them to lie, to take each other's toys, to hit each other. We didn't have to teach them that at all. So if, if morality is, is just what's in your genes, I would say, well, there you go. Lying, cheating, taking each other's stuff, hitting each other, violence, that's what we're naturally disposed to do. We had to work, my wife and I had to work very hard to teach our kids not to lie, not to take each other's stuff, and not to hit each other when they had disputes. So that did not come naturally. So an evolutionary outcome doesn't work very well when we start thinking about justice and injustice. Injustice. There's another thing. In, in Darwinian theory, it's whoever passes the most, their, their genes on to the largest percentage of the population is evolutionarily successful. And we have a candidate here for a human. It's Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan slaughtered millions. There's one city alone that he's thought to have slaughtered a million people in that city and piled their bodies up front. I don't know how long that would take, a million bodies in a big pile outside the city to send a message to all other cities they better surrender without putting up a fight. But he also um, imposed himself on an awful lot of women who had an awful lot of kids of his making. As a result, 0.5% of the world's population of men carry his Y chromosome now. That's 800,000 times the normal reproductive success rate for men. So if you want evolution to be running the show when it comes to how we should behave, we should be behaving like Genghis Khan, survival of the fittest. And a lot of times that's our natural instincts, but that doesn't jive. That does not fit at all with our concepts. In fact, I, almost, I disagree with Richard Dawkins on just about everything that he says, but here's one that I totally agree on. Richard Dawkins is probably the world's most famous Darwinist, and he writes, I shall argue that a predominant quality to be expected in a successful gene is ruthless selfishness. 
Be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly toward a common good, you can expect little help from biological nature. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. My question to Dawkins is, well, what is the standard that makes selfish bad? And what is it that you're teaching? Where does that come from, this sense of justice and rightness and perfection? Where does that come if it doesn't come from biology? So let's move on and continue to address that question. Could this standard then be a perfection, some sort of standard of perfection determined by society? So one of the arguments I hear is that, well, our sense of morality and ethics comes from this, this general need to cooperate and work together, okay? So having studied this stuff in philosophy, I know that societies can make ethical codes. They can, they can make up their own system of morality and ethics. For example, there's contractarianism, which is what the way Canada runs, mostly, our, our secular government. It's an unwritten, well, they do write it into laws, but in general, in society, it's an unwritten social contract that allows the people in that society to all get along as best as possible. It's just an unwritten social contract. You're going to pick up, don't do this, do that, you know, this kind of thing. That becomes, that's a system of contractarianism, an unwritten social contract. Then there's utilitarianism, which is a set of rules that maximizes happiness for the greatest number of people. And there may, there may be some individuals who don't do so well under that system, but that's utilitarianism. And there's different brands. There's a whole spectrum under each category. Problem with that is this, <clears throat> that we believe that some societies are better or more just than other societies. So I would concede, yes, we can, in fact, different civilizations, different societies, make up their own system of ethics and rules. I would concede that. Yeah, we can certainly do that. However, the moment we start talking about some society systems being better than other society systems, we're now appealing to an even higher standard still. And we look around at some societies today and we see, yes, yeah, some societies really don't, like North Korea, for example, which is a utilitarian system there. North Korea, wow, we don't think that comes to, uh, we think we have a better system here than North Korea does. And that might be using an extreme example, but it does highlight this one thing. You can make up your own ethic system as a society, but in order to compare which society system is better, you have to have an even higher standard still. C.S. Lewis writes, the moment you say that one set of moral ideas is better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them both by a standard saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. You are, in fact, comparing them both with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. Takeaway. For discussions of evil and injustice to have any real meaning, we need a flawless standard of perfection and beauty against, with, against which all other moral and ethical systems can be compared to to see how close to perfection they come. So what is that standard? I was just wondering if somebody at the back would mind getting me a cup of coffee so I can you know, lubricate the, the throat there from time to time. Black, please. So what is that standard? Since moral laws are only useful to minds capable of moral deliberation, the best explanation for the source of those laws is a mind itself. 
In other words, it'd be, uh, if you saw a piece of paper blow into the wind of the recipe for chocolate cake, the best explanation for where that recipe for chocolate cake comes is that it came from someone who has an appreciation for chocolate cake. So if you see a, 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 some sort of standard of morality and rightness and justice that's only useful to minds. If you don't have a mind, you can't make moral decisions, like a rock, for example. Moral codes are not, in, are not useful to rocks and fence posts and, and you know, dead fungus. Not useful to those things at all because they don't have a mind. Therefore, we say the best explanation to where this moral code comes from is a mind itself. You wouldn't expect something that's only useful to minds to come from a pile of rocks. That would be truly fascinating if it did. Secondly, since moral laws are useful only to minds that have free will to make, thanks a lot, to make moral choices, the best explanation for the source of those laws is also mind that has free will. You see, if you don't have free will, uh, you might have a mind, but if you don't have free will, you can't actually make a choice. Your choices are predetermined. So let's say this cup of coffee, for example. This cup of coffee, if I let it go, it does not have a choice whether or not it's just going to stay there. It's going to plummet to the floor. It has no choice. So making a rule for cups of coffee saying you're not allowed to fall on the floor, totally useless for cups of coffee because they can't choose whether or not they're going to fall on the floor. It's predetermined whether they fall on the floor given their peripheral circumstances, which right now is my hand holding up the cup. Unless the caretaker get nervous about this illustration, I'll put it right back down there. Third, since the ultimate moral laws must be perfect, and why do we say that? It's because we need something to compare all other moral systems to. And if it's not perfect, we would, the moment we say, well, we're comparing it to that system over there, but that system's not perfect. The moment you say that, you're saying that there's even a higher standard still, and according to that higher standard, that one's not perfect. There's a perfect one. And so ultimately, you have no choice but to concede that this ultimate moral law has to be perfect so that we can compare all other moral systems too. And what do we mean by perfect? There's a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. He defines it like this. It is such a degree of goodness that it's not logically possible to be more good or beautiful. You've reached the end here, the, the highest degree of goodness that it's logically possible. Essentially, what we're talking about here is a perfectly good God, a being beyond which it's not logically possible to be more better. And what have I done here? I've just simply shown that starting with evil and injustice in this world, starting with that, what does it point to? It points to some ultimate standard. Well, what's the, what does this ultimate standard point to? A perfectly good God. So instead of arguing that evil and injustice shows there's no God, what I've shown here is that if you're going to take that seriously, you have to concede in the end that we have a very good argument for the existence of, of a perfectly good God if you start with evil and justice in this world. The big question is why doesn't he stop what we see going on? That's a totally different question. But we can't even talk about evil unless there's a good standard here. There's a nice definition, or a nice, not definition, but a nice um, description of God here found in James chapter 1. It says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That is a description of a being with that degree of goodness beyond which it is not logically possible to be better. Not only is he good, he is the standard of goodness. 
He is what defines goodness. He is the origin of every good thing given and every perfect gift. You can't be better than that. You could have a being here that's perfect, but perfect in light of this moral code over here. But then you could have another being that's flawless, needs no moral code, but is just flawless in and of itself. That's God, who becomes the origin and, and, uh, and personification of every good thing given and every perfect gift. You can't possibly get better than that when not only are you perfectly good, but you're the origin of everything that's perfectly good. Takeaway for part one, we cannot escape the need for a perfectly good God if we were to talk meaningfully about evil and injustice. Every violation of justice and perfection points to an ultimate standard of perfection and beauty that is being violated, which in turn points to God. I apologize, that, it's really good here. <clears throat> Part two, why we have no idea what God should and should not allow. So this little gift here is a droplet falling into, a, a, let's say, a pond, for example. But what it illustrates is that that little point of impact of the droplet represents an event, one of any kind of event in this world, big, small, doesn't matter, it represents an event. Every event unleashes a series of consequences. It could be the up or down spin of an electron, something really small. Every event unleashes a series of consequences, and those consequences spread. They do not die out, contrary to ripples on the pond. They spread. And because of that, we're going to figure out what God should and should not allow. We, cannot, we have a tendency to look at the actual event, the point of impact. But gratuitous evil or pointless evil, by the word pointless, tells us we're not just interested in the actual event itself. Let's say the crucifixion of Jesus. If that's all you saw, you would say, what an atrocity. You have to look at the consequences. And secular philosophers agree with this. You it's the consequences of an event that have to also be taken into account, not just the event. And so these consequences begin to increase exponentially throughout future history to the point where we haven't the foggiest idea what even the, all the consequences are, let alone how to evaluate the net moral value of this. So that's my main idea in this section here. So let me give you an illustration. So Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of England during World War II, during the Battle of Britain, and he had a major influence, on, uh, immediate influence on millions of lives at the time, and Consequently, today has changed the future radically so that, and I would argue, and I don't have time to substantiate this, but none of us would exist. A different set of people would exist because if you just tweak time a little bit, and this comes out in his own conception here. If on the night Winston Churchill was conceived, Lady Randolph Churchill had fallen asleep in a slightly different position than the sheer number of genetic combinations available at any conception event, because there's millions of spermatozoa involved in these things. Only one wins. The, the sheer number of possible combinations, a slight difference in the internal arrangement of her internal organs, would have virtually guaranteed that a different Churchill would have been conceived that night, in which case Sir Winston would never have existed, would never have influenced the outcome of World War II so radically. And the world today would be a very different place. Now, the position that a woman falls asleep in at night is thought to have no moral significance. We wouldn't think, we don't need to worry about that. Yes, we do. You need to worry about every single event that occurs in this world. And you need to know all the consequences of the event to the end of history. Before you are in a position to know what God should and should not allow. Take away. 
Every event that occurs in this world, no matter how insignificant it seems at the moment, produces a cascade of consequences like ripples in a pond that spread into the future. Small events can result in huge moral consequences in the future. And the, that event, the conception event of Sir Winston Churchill, resulted in Churchill being Prime Minister of England, and his decisions at that time had huge moral consequences for the state of the world at that time and to this day. So we're, each event in the past produces an increasing number of consequences you see here in this slowly unfolding graphic. And those consequences interact with the unfolding consequences of other events occurred in history. So you may have events there like this one here occurred at one area in time and one geographical area. Another event occurs later on in history at a different geographical, each position on the earth. And this event produces consequences that unfold into the future. So does this one. And eventually those two consequences, sets of consequences begin to merge. And they then have altered consequences. And there's another event that occurs as a result of this one here. And this is a simplistic drawing of, of history. There are billions of these things, billion, trillions in fact, you probably don't have names for numbers that big, but there's trillions of these things unfolding as we speak throughout the world. And what God, you have to know, you have to know the net moral outcome of everything to know which events should be deleted and which not. You can't just go around deleting events. Like this one, for example, here, this wire mesh diagram. People say, well, I don't think God should have allowed that right there. Well, okay, let's delete that. You don't just delete an event. What happens when you delete an event is you delete all the consequences into the future. Now this whole area has been changed because you deleted that event there. Thank goodness we don't have time travel. That would be a disaster. To know what should and should not be allowed, you must know the net moral value of all the interacting moral consequences at the end of history. No human has that ability. Additional thought. Even though we know, do, we do not know what God should and should not allow, God expects us to make our moral decisions on the basis of what we could reasonably be expected to know with our limited knowledge. Why do I say that? I say it because people say, look, I was walking home the other night and I saw this elderly senior citizen being beaten in the back alley by a couple of young fellows trying to take her purse. And I was about to intervene, and then I remembered Kirk Durston's lecture about all of this, and I thought, whoa, like, how am I going to be affecting the future? I don't know. Should I intervene or not? No, that's, that, this kind of moral indecision is preempted by another thing you see clearly in the Bible, and that if you know the right thing to do, you have a moral obligation to do that. If everybody did that, it would massively skew all these things and massively skew them towards right goodness and justice. It would mass the, the whole thing would do that, but it, we don't always do that. And so now God must decide which events to allow, which not to allow. Should He allow the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Yes, that we can see in retrospect that was a, that was a horrible thing on the one hand, but it, it was the greatest victory against evil on the other. As every parent with children knows, the greater the difference in knowledge between two persons, the more likely it is that the person with the less knowledge will not understand why the person with greater knowledge makes the decisions that they do. So your children may strongly disagree with you. I used to tell my kids, nothing good happens after midnight. That's why I want you to be home <laughs> before midnight. And uh, just uh, last week, or two weeks ago, one of my boy's got hit by a car. He's, 
He's got back problems, probably got a ruptured, herniated disc, but um, it happened 1.30 in the morning when he was out with some friends riding bicycles. I'm thinking, I told him, nothing good happens after midnight. I told him again, that, <laughs> what are you doing riding a bicycle at 1 o'clock in the morning? Um, the difference in knowledge between an omniscient God and us is quite substantial, to say the least. So if there's disputes between you and your children over what should and should not happen, can you imagine the kind of disputes you have between someone with omniscience? And omniscience is defined as knowing all that's logically possible to know. And here's Kirk Durston with minuscule amount of knowledge. Of course, there's going to be differences of opinion. And as a result, it's often the case that God is going to appear to be unjust to us. And the reason for that is that we have a minuscule set of knowledge. We just don't know the ultimate outcome of all those unfolding causal chains of history. Take away for part two. Our minuscule knowledge of how every event and its consequences affects the consequences of every other event in history and the ultimate net moral value of the whole thing leaves us in no position whatsoever to know or judge what an omniscient God should allow in this world. That was the kind of the main idea of my master's thesis. Normally a master's defense uh, doesn't last very long. The whole, my department was mostly atheists and agnostic professors, and everybody turned out it was get Kirk time. And uh, that thing went on, I think it was about two, two and a half hours. It was like way longer than a normal master's defense. But in the end, it passed, and I got some papers published in this area. So I want you, I say that to tell you this, is that sometimes when you hear somebody speaking, they wonder, well, how much is he just sliding by because we're kind of a positive audience here? But when you see stuff published in a peer-reviewed secular journals, you know that what I've just told you here actually can stand up in a secular academic situation where atheists are very highly motivated to see if they can pick a hole in this. No, I haven't dealt with all the objections. And another philosopher wrote a paper objecting to some of my arguments, and then I wrote another paper responding to his. So you need to know there are people who have objected to this. You can read those objections, and then you can read my response as well don't have time to go into that this morning, but the end result is, I think this argument stands. Insights from the Bible now. This is the encouraging part. So we've just learned that we're not in no position at all to know what God should and should not allow, just if that's all the information we have. But we have some information, and that's the Word of God. And it does give us some insights. But I want to uh, just divide this final section into three parts. First of all, I, have, I want to make two general points. And then I want to look at some of the insights from Scripture, and then I want to look, deal with one last thing, and it's the hardest thing of all to deal with the problem of evil and suffering. What we've dealt with so far is what we might call the intellectual problem of evil. How do we reconcile this intellectually? But far harder is the emotional problem of evil. Because when something really hard happens in my life, I'm not particularly interested in some philosopher coming along and giving me an intellectual possible answer here. I'm, that's not what's going to do it for me. When we're really hurting, and every one of us, unless we die young and are spared that, but if the longer you live, the more loved ones you're going to see pass on, and the more you're going to experience grief. And philosophical intellectual answers can be helpful to a certain extent, but there's another whole area of the pain and the suffering and the grief that need, I want to close with, how do we deal with that? That'll be the third section here. The first of the two general points I want to make is that this life is not the main event. It's the dream before the awakening. 
It's not the main event. Our secular society sees this life as the only event. And dying is the worst thing that could happen to you because it's over when you die. But in reality, our life is like an airport. The objective is not to stay in the airport as long as you possibly can. The objective is to get to your destination, to get whatever, uh, get through security, get your luggage stowed, get into the waiting area, pray that that flight's not delayed, and so that you can get to your destination. Nevertheless, even as Christians in this life, I see time and again that we want to hold on to this life as long as we possibly can. And in one sense, there's something to be said for living a healthy, productive, and a fruitful life for eternity. But in another sense, when it is time to go, when it is time to go and all the options, have, we've done everything we can, uh, like... Uh, I'll take a swig of coffee. Okay. <clears throat> Our mission in this life is to prepare for eternity and help others do the same. That's the mission. So it, it, really, it really doesn't matter how long you live. From it's, it's, it's whether you've carried out your mission. That's it. And so it's not really relevant about how long a person lives, but... Have they carried, and only God knows that. Only God knows whether you're ready for eternity. And you might be ready for eternity, but you still have a mission to carry out in this world, and that is to help others get ready themselves. Uh, I was talking with another person who has a friend that's dying very young. He's 29. He's dying slowly right now as I speak in a hospital in London, England. And she says, so much potential. The guy's a genius, and she's told me what this guy does, and he is literally um, a genius. Uh, when it comes to uh, the world's computer systems, everything. He can do stuff you didn't even think was possible, this guy. But he's only got months probably left to live. And she says, what a loss of potential. And in one sense, yeah, okay, if we just looked at this life as if it's the only thing, it is a loss of potential. But that's not what? A loss of what? So let's say I would build the world's greatest spacecraft, the world's greatest aircraft. I would build cities that you have not even dreamed of, but it's all going to burn. It's all going to be destroyed someday. That's not what our real potential is. Those are great things, mind you. If you've got talents and abilities, you need to invest them and use them for the Lord. But in, one, in another sense, that's not where your potential is. It lies in eternity. So God sees, and the second major point I want to get, so the first major point is this life is a transition time. This is not the main event. This is preparation for the main event. Secondly, is that God sees people very different from us. So when we look at a cute little toddler, we see, oh, isn't that cute, innocent child? But God is, I am. It seems that he transcends time in some way. He actually knew us before the foundation of the world. And when you start thinking about what that entails... When I was a toddler and my parents thought I was cute, God looked at that toddler and, and he sees me very differently when I was a toddler. He sees me as a cute little toddler. He sees me as a teenager thinking I know way more than my parents. He sees me in my 20s, in my 30s. He sees the bad decisions I made, the good ones. He sees when I'm a senior citizen. He sees the whole of my life, all simultaneously, and all the moral outcomes of everything that I've done. He sees people very differently than us. We have to remember that. So, when our mission is accomplished, then it is time to go, and how old one is or one's potential in this life is not relevant. 
What's relevant is, is your mission accomplished? And only God knows that. And it might be accomplished as an infant, perhaps even before that person is born in the womb, before they born come out of the womb. Many people have had miscarriages. Those are real people, according to the scriptures, Ecclesiastes, book of Job. Insight number one. Let's look at the insights now. I've just made two general points. Here's one. When the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. And here's the point. Affluent societies tend to become self-centered and self-indulgent, living for the here and now. And if you want an example, just take a look at Canadian society. Take a look around us. They are obsessed with personal rights and with pleasure. They want to maximize happiness and pleasure in this life because this life is all we have. They feel they don't need God. I've talked to so many people they don't need God. And uh, yeah, you don't need God to get up in the morning. Well, actually they do. They don't realize it, that every beat of their heart, every breath they draw is a gift from God. Every day that they wake up is another gift from God. They don't realize that. But in another sense, a fungus can make it through life without you know, uh, having a serious spiritual relationship with the Lord. But they don't need God because, hey, life is good and you only live once. Nothing provides a more jarring wake-up call to a nation or a culture like a major disaster. And this is what God is saying here. When everything is going wonderful, the nations become self-obsessed. They don't, they don't learn righteousness. It's only when the inhabitants of the world experience the judgments of God that all of a sudden the wake-up call comes. And they start thinking about more important things. I've worked a lot in third-world countries. I'd say the average third-world person is much more in touch with reality than Canadians are. Relationships are much more important. They tend to believe in God much more. They tend to take God much more seriously because they don't have a whole lot in this world of distractions. Insight number two. Listen, my beloved brethren. God did not... God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. So the point here is that we live in a world, as we saw there, with a complex history of cause and effect. Most of what we suffer may not be because of anything we have done. Rather, we often suffer the consequences of other people's and other governments' actions. The poor and oppressed and the downtrodden may actually be in a favorable position according to what the scriptures say, that God has chosen them to be rich in faith. Lazarus would be another example in that reference there. Of course, those of us who are not suffering, we see that very clear in the scriptures, we have a moral obligation to help those who are, the widows, the orphans, the people who need our help. We have a moral obligation to help them. But at the same time, we can't, we can't um, look at ourselves. As we, in one sense, we're privileged financially, but in another sense, from what he said here, is that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Insight number three. The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. And if he just stopped there, you wouldn't know why. But then he continues, for the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. You have no idea, none of us. We only have the barest, barest, vaguest concept of what it is like to pass on from this life and enter the presence of God. We think this life is so great, so wonderful, we want to hang on, and God has to drag us kicking and screaming into eternity. When in fact, once we get there, we're, wow, why didn't I die like when I was two years old? Um, the thing here is this, is that sometimes, the takeaway point here is that sometimes good people die young. 
And we wonder why God allowed that. But we forget that our mission here in, in life is not to live as long as we possibly can. That's not our mission. But the life is like an airport. We're here to fulfill our mission, to prepare for eternity and help others do the same. And when that is done, it is time to go to a vastly better place. Now, of course, all the other things that we do in this life, the talents and abilities, those are all the things that God uses and that we are required to be good stewards of that help us prepare for eternity and help others do the same. It doesn't mean just, you know, sit in a chair or lay in bed and wait for, you know, something to happen. No, that's not how you prepare for eternity. You prepare by being a good steward of what God has given you in this life. Note that a good person dying young is spoken of as a reward, but only for that person. Those of us who are left grieve. I, you know, when my kids even just left home to, to get married and move in with their spouse, there's a pang there, and they're still alive. We all know the longer you live, when you say goodbye for the last time in this life to someone you love, it's hard. But what God is saying is it's not just all about us who remain here on earth. It's also about that person. And that person, sometimes the righteous person is taken away young to spare them from the pain and sorrow in this life. Their mission is accomplished. Insight number four. This was given to the wife of Jeroboam when their son got ill. Jeroboam was a wicked king. And uh, he sent her to the prophet. And the prophet had a message from the Lord. And this is what it said. Now you rise, go to your house, because she had traveled over to his place. Go back to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave. Now that sounds pretty cruel if he just stopped there. Moment your feet cross the threshold, your child dies. But then he says this, for because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel. Sometimes, sometimes God will take children at a very young age. tough to even talk about it. So let's move on to insight number five. Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Sometimes, and as I hope you understand now that maybe most suffering, a lot of suffering we occur in this life is not because of anything you do. It's not because you're reaping what you sow. But sometimes it will be. If you willfully continue on to refuse to stop practicing something wrong in what you're doing. Sometimes suffering is a natural consequence of immoral or foolish decisions. My mom always told me, Kirk, there's two ways to learn. The hard way or the wise way. The wise way was listening to my parents. <laughs> the hard way was, don't listen, go ahead and do that, and then just see what happens. Secondly, note also that the reward for doing good may not be immediate. We sometimes expect it. You know, I did this and I that, and I don't see, you know, what's happening here. It's not immediate. We may be tempted to lose heart. There's implications here that sometimes doing the right thing may require a lifetime of not seeing the reward, and we see that in Hebrews where he talks about great men and women in the faith who didn't see a whole lot of the reward in this life, but he says their reward is in eternity. That's where faith comes in. It will come in due time. 
in sight number six. My son, do not lightly uh, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So here's an idea here, that sometimes suffering is unavoidable. You may decide, no, I don't want to learn the hard way. I want to learn the easy way. And you can spare yourself a lot of suffering by not having to learn the hard way, but you can't spare yourself from all suffering. Because sometimes it's just discipline for spiritual maturity. It's not necessarily for anything you did wrong. It's just time to move on to a higher level of spiritual maturity. It's going to require some not-so-pleasant things happening in your life. It's to prepare us for eternity and to make us a holy people. So this raises the possibility that in some ways followers of Jesus Christ may suffer even more than people of this world, contrary to some expectations of health, wealth, and prosperity. So you might see lightning strikes the church, burns it down in some city in the U.S. and say, like, how did that happen? I mean, if any building shouldn't have burnt down and been struck by lightning, it should have been not the church. But sometimes God allows the Christian to go through extra things that the other ones will never go through. I want to close with the encouragement and comfort in this life. So we're all going to, the longer you live, the more tougher, th- the, more, the more things you're going to encounter in this life that are hard, that are just hard. And I have found it to be of enormous help to have someone who is with me day and night, who can pick me up and carry me through the darkest times of life. I speak of the Good Shepherd. That's Jesus Christ, my Redeemer. Psalm 23, one of my favorite psalms. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me in your rod and staff to comfort me. There is no fast way to get over grief. I've never heard of anybody come up with a way to do that. and And it's a long, hard road sometimes, but there is a way of healing, and it's only in the arms of Jesus Christ. That's the only place I have found. There's times when I couldn't do anything else but just say, read some Psalms. And, and just talk to God, just maybe even not talk, just be there and knowing that he's with me. After the death of, C.S., of Lewis's wife, he wrote, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head Not in refusal, but in waving the question, like, peace, child, you don't understand. Heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparent contradictory notions. He's not going to explain all those evolving causal chains. That's not what's going to happen. He says, rather, the notions will all be knocked from under our feet. We shall see that there never was any problem. And I think there's a, the, there's a lot of truth in that. There cannot be a better good shepherd, one who knew you before the creation of the world, who loves you beyond your ability to conceive, and who will pick you up and carry you in his arms during the times in the life when you are so devastated that you just cannot see how you can possibly make it through another day. You must be willing, however, 
to put your faith in him, to throw yourselves in the arms of Christ, to ask him, just pick me up and hold me, Lord. We will find that this life was but a dream we can no longer remember, and there's my reference for that one. He says, the, th thing, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But instead, we'll have an eternity spread before us, which has not even entered the heart of mind. The wildest imagination people have ever had has not even touched the level of what he has prepared for us. He says, they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And that is what I would suggest is to deal with the emotional problem of evil. You have to keep that eternal perspective. Throw yourselves in the arms of Christ. That concludes the formal part. We've got a few minutes for questions now. By the way, once again, the notes for all the slides are up there, and my website is there for other articles or papers that I mentioned. That's good. Well, here's how we're going to do um, the Q&A. You can uh, do Q&A a couple of ways. Um, if you would like to submit a question, if you go to uh, Facebook Ready Answers Conference or Instagram Ready Answers Conference, you can submit your questions anonymously. Well, it won't be anonymous. I'll see who it is, <laughs> but I won't say who it is, okay? So almost anonymously um, that way. And then um, if you have a question from the floor, just raise your hand. I'll come to you with the mic, and uh, we're about 15 minutes for questions if anyone would like to ask a follow-up question to what Kirk presented. Okay, hang on just a second, Paul. Set the standard, hi. Uh, just a question about uh, the difference between uh, Old Testament God and today, um, as far as how he allows evil, or does not allow it, but it seems like today it's more uh, like predetermination uh, causal effect like you were talking about, but in the Old Testament, he was a lot more hands-on. Uh, Noah, Sodom, Gomorrah, showing his influence in these changes of events. So what has changed? Okay, a very good question, and uh, not an easy one to answer in just a minute, so forgive me already for probably what will turn out to be a rather shallow answer in comparison to what is required. But um, when we send a spacecraft off to Saturn, in, when it, that initial launch takes place, it has to be extremely guided, tight constraints. As it gets closer to the object, then uh, if we're off by, like, say, one arc second here on Earth, uh, we are so badly far off at the end. So what initially, it's the same with raising children. We started with very strict at the beginning and then gradually loosened up from t that point on because the, the, the trajectories were, were beginning to be set with a strict beginning, high control, and same with spacecraft, children, and a lot of things. That At the beginning of the project, you have to have high control, and then as the things begin to stabilize into their trajectories, they're going in the right direction, you're able to afford to back off a little and allow a little bit more of this to go on. Um, with regard to the God of the Old Testament, there, there is, I, I, see, I like to read, I, I would highly recommend reading through the Bible once a year minimum. I don't have the greatest memory, so I have to read it through about every nine months just to keep it fresh. But when you read it through like that, you see, you see some of these larger things going on. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, he says, I get no satisfaction out of the death of the wicked, but rather they turn, repent. Um, I don't know if I'm getting off on the right track. So let me just pause here. Am I heading in the right direction with this answer? Let me... You have no idea. Okay. 
I would just summarize it by saying very tight control is always required. Let's say, I mean, I used to read a lot of science fiction and uh, where you're trying to get some massive outcome in the future, tight control at the beginning, loosen up in the end. But in the end also, there's a totally different covenant in place now as opposed to what was under the Old Testament. And how God works in that covenant is very different. There's a totally different state of affairs now where we actually have the Spirit dwelling within us, whereas they did not necessarily have the Holy Spirit. There are places where the Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament. So we have a whole nother resource available to us to help us live the way we ought to live, as opposed to the Old Testament law was not to define a perfect civilization. It was to provide a minimum standard of behavior. And I could give a lecture on that and why that is the case. Minimum standard, they could not even live up to that. But there was embedded in that little love God with all your heart, soul, mind, love your neighbors, yourself. That's actually in the Old Testament. Now we have the capabilities of beginning to do that. So everything changes in how God works. We are now in a state of where... I'll stop there because we want to have time for more questions. So it's just a beginning to answer your question. Okay, I got a question over here. Hang on. By the way, if I get off track, just up with your hand, get me back on track on the answer to your question. Um, hi, I have a, two questions. So outside of your professional obligations to uh, defend and, and publish papers and whatnot, how do you navigate when to debate and when to let it go? <laughs> um, perhaps even within uh, family circles. Mm -hmm. um, and my second question is, how have you seen other skeptics respond to your logic and reason? Because you do bring up a good point of the emotional side and spiritual mm -hmm. side of healing. Mm -hmm. So how have you found skeptics respond and can you encourage us in um, engaging and, and, you know, maybe when not to? Yeah. For, uh, both excellent questions. The first, um, how do you know when to debate and when not to? Um, I would say do something that my trainer told me uh, on my first year in, in, in full-time missions. He said, Kirk, learn the art of asking the right questions. It's an art. I don't, I'm still, after a lot of years, have not mastered that art, but before I get involved, but I would like to ask, I want to get to know where that person's coming from. So I'll, I'll ask them questions like, why do you think this, or what about that? And uh, I remember meeting for a guy for coffee, a very angry atheist, and we were going through some intellectual stuff there, and it just wasn't doing anything and he just seemed to be so angry and I just stopped after about half an hour as we were going back and forth and I said, why are you so angry at this non-existent God? And he says, because my mom died when I was six. That changes everything. So it's important to ask questions and that'll tell you what path to take. And it's, as a as a mature adult, you, can, you already got that ability to feel where things should go and where they shouldn't go, and just, just listen to that, but ask questions, and then you will be able to dialogue better. And just talking at people doesn't usually work very well. It's more engaging them. So even if you're asking questions, and then you may be... I met with a lesbian president of the student, her student group. She was very hostile towards me wrote bad things about me in the student paper, and she'd never met me, so we went for coffee. And I met with her, and I knew that the first off, she needs to, she's an angry person, so I just need a lead to listen. It was one hour straight, I just listened. And uh, only in the second hour, we began to start having a conversation. 
And after two hours, we had to go, and I said, uh, she said, this was really good. We should do this again sometime. And that whole thing was, you got to listen to people, got to ask questions, got to engage them, and you got to do that. So the second question is, intellectual versus the emotional. Um, there are different people. When I first started, it was entirely intellectual. I designed my arguments to be airtight syllogisms, just there was no way out. It was a chess game, and there's checkmate. And I found that a certain percentage of the people really liked that. Other percentage of people just uh, didn't do anything for them whatsoever. So I think when we're, we have to discern when we have to appeal to the mind and when we have to appeal to the heart, and the best thing is to appeal to both. But some people are at a stage in life, they've lost a child, that's not the time for some intellectual stuff. In fact, it's probably just the time to be there and, and say nothing, actually. But eventually, uh, pray for them or tell them, like, there's some people going through real grief right now. All they can say is, just pray for me. So I, I'll, and I'll send them a text every few days, still remembering you. Here we have a question uh, submitted online. Did you say evil has no point or is in itself pointless? What about the devil's purposes? Please elaborate. Yeah. No, I'm glad that question was asked because it does allow me to clarify that. So philosophers talk about pointless evil. So pointless evil is evil that is... What's that hand back there for? Or, oh, so uh, a lot of evil... I say pointless evil is evil that God could, that didn't bring about a greater good, didn't prevent a greater evil. There was no point in it. And the philosophers generally agree that a perfectly good God will not allow pointless evil. So whatever evil occurs in this world, if God is perfectly good, must either bring about a greater good or prevent a greater evil. So that's, that kind of evil is not pointless. They use the term gratuitous. The, uh, if it has no point to it, it didn't do anything, didn't bring about a greater, stop a better, worse evil, then that's called gratuitous evil or pointless evil. I hope that's clear. That a lot, so I, I believe that all evil that does occur in this world does have a point to it. God did not need it, but it's... Uh, th that's a whole other discussion. What should God allow and not allow? But he allowed that to occur because it actually prevented a much greater evil. Um, next Good, question. So we'll do two more questions. I'm going to read one that came in, and then I'm going to make my way back to Paul. He gets the last question. So here's okay. uh, the question, another question online. You stated that moral intuitions are not an evolutionary outcome, i.e. we have to teach morals. Mm -hmm. What about fairness, which C.S. Lewis also addressed? Fairness? Fairness. Okay, I, I, stop me if I'm not answering a question here, but I would classify fairness right in there with justice. There, there is a sense of fairness. Um, in the animal world, I don't see that. Um, I mean, I would see that this cooperative, for example, I was raised on a beef farm, and so cows are pretty docile normally, um, but there is still a pecking order in that herd. You'll see a pecking order in just about every area of mammals, as far as I'm aware of, there's a pecking order. And things just work great as long as you don't challenge the boss. But you put in a couple of new heifers, after two years, we'd give them all, two years we'd pick out the best heifers. They're going to be our next generation of breeders, put them in with a herd, fights break out all over the place. They're reestablishing their pecking order. There's not, they're not worried about fairness here, they're worried about the pecking order. So justice is, that's, that, that would be biology, just as who's going to be the top of the pile, whether you're a cow, a dolphin, a chimpanzee, everybody seems to have a pecking order, whereas fairness is different, and that seems to be associated with justice, so I would say that that is definitely require a standard of perfect justice if we're going to start saying 
who's more fair than the other, which civilization is more fair than the other. Okay, last question right here. We have a lady in our small group who has a friend, uh, a mother of three, very young, uh, dying of cancer, and she's extremely angry with God. Um, and uh, it's been part of our prayer requests, and I've been trying to figure out something to share with her. How do you convince someone that God is still loving when they're going through something like that? I, I've listened to, to what you've had to say, but what words can we use, if any, to, to help out? You're shaking your head no. Uh -oh. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I wish I knew, I, I, I wish there was three sentences you could say, that you say these three sentences, everything's good. Um, rather, I, I can only say how I cope with, and I, haven't, and I haven't had to face, I don't personally am not dying of cancer as far as I know. Um, but there are times when I just have to say, God is sovereign, he knew this was going to happen, he has a plan, and I trust him. Simple as that. I can say that based on my life experience with God, what I see in the word, but what if a person doesn't, can't do that? And there is a role for the Holy Spirit to play here. Only the Holy Spirit can convict of sin, but only the Holy Spirit can also convict a person in other ways. Jesus says, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. So at some point, a person, I mean, I, I can't, I, it's very difficult to answer your question because she's different than the other person over here, and that would have to take place in a conversation, a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. But I would like to go with the, in the direction of, at some point, you're going to have to decide whether you're going to trust God with your children when you pass on. You're going to have to decide whether or not he knew about this ahead of time. He let it happen, and if he is perfectly good, what is going to be the outcome here? At some point, you just have to give it to God. And what is the option of not doing that? And we would like, I would discuss that with a person too. What will you gain with, being, with hating God? What will you gain? And we would have a, that sort of a conversation. And I would also, I wrote a little article, it's on my website there, dealing with grief. Um, I would talk a lot about, about the Good Shepherd, that in the end, you're just, I, I have to, I mean, I'm a her human like anyone else, I have to throw myself in the arms of Christ. That God, I don't know what's going on here, it just looks like bad. Um, here I am, here I am. I literally, well not literally, yeah, pretty much literally, this is me. Let's say here, here's the hand of God on a daily basis. I've reached the point now where I realize the Christian life requires that I, every day, take me, put myself in the hand of God, and I say, God, you do to me anything you want, anything. And that may require going the same road this woman is. Now, it's obviously my kids aren't young yet, so I can't actually go down that same road. But I've said, what if I wake up tomorrow morning with an IQ of 10? If that's what God wants, sign me up. I trust God that much. And this really is the issue here. Will you trust God with your children and your life and everything that is before you? Will you trust God? And at the end of the day, that's all I have. If I can't trust God, I got nothing. That's the other option. Nothing or trust God. That's great. Thanks so much.